Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. In the East End of London, during the time of Jack the Ripper, a series of disappearances of young girls left the community in disarray, terrified of what may happen next. A body was discovered in an abandoned building, and the terrified community came out in their thousands to mourn the murder of a young girl who had been a part of their everyday life. But there were still two missing people left unaccounted for. That was until a mysterious parcel arrived in North London. Today on Macabre London, we uncover the story of the West Ham vanishings. and welcome back to another episode of Macabre London and to part two of my investigation into the West Ham vanishings. I'm Nikki Druce, your host with a silent G, and today I'll be taking you on a journey down another of London's grimy back streets to uncover a macabre tale from the city's past. This is the second part of this episode, so make sure you go and listen to part one if you haven't already, the link for which will be in the description or on the screen if you're watching on YouTube. And don't worry, I'll be giving you a short recap before we pick back up where we left off last time. However, before we get into today's episode, if you're new here and you want to see more videos where we deep dive into some lesser known historic tales from London's past, and in fact, all over the world, then please don't forget to subscribe or follow so you never miss a new episode. If you aren't new here and you regularly enjoy the show and you want it to continue, please consider supporting me on Patreon. The link is in the show notes. There's loads of bonus content over there, including my monthly show, Gin and Ghost Stories, where I drink gin and tell ghost stories, and lots of other fun spooky bonus bits and bobs too. 
I've just embarked on reading a book all about weird London history over there, so if you fancy a slightly less professional sounding audiobook narrator who might be slightly tipsy, the last episode was quite unhinged, then why not take a look on patreon.com forward slash macabre London. I'd love to see you there. Today's tale starts where we left off last time, picking up at Amelia's inquest into her death. But here's a brief recap of what we've heard so far. Amelia Jeffs, who had gone missing on January the 31st, 1890, after nipping out to buy a fish and chip supper for her family, had been found dead in a cupboard of a newly built but as yet unoccupied house at 126 Portway in West Ham. The keys for the house hadn't been found, the police had dawdled in searching the properties, and it took two weeks for poor Amelia to be found. Previously, two other girls had gone missing from the same street Amelia had been snatched from, and today we'll be delving into their tales, and also the conclusion of Amelia's story, plus exploring a mysterious parcel, which may just leave you with more questions than answers once it's opened. Last time, we ended on two poignant statements made to the press by both of Amelia's parents, who referred to their daughter as their darling Millie, and the pair were now headed to the inquest for their departed child to try and get to the bottom of who had taken her life. At the inquest which was held at the King's Head Tavern in West Ham, which, as we have to remember, pubs often served as courtrooms in the Victorian era, the jury heard about the tragic circumstances Millie was found in. Her father said she was approaching her 15th birthday, but sadly didn't live to see it. And he then gave a testimonial about her personality, which is quite odd to think of nowadays, that this would be part of a trial. But I guess the judge was trying to ascertain if Millie had managed to get herself caught up in something untoward. Mr Jeffs then went on to talk about the evening itself and the events which unfolded, which led to Millie being reported as missing. Recalling that when he returned from working at the railway, his wife said she'd sent 14-year-old Millie to get dinner, and when she hadn't returned, he'd gone to the fish shop, but the shop owner said Millie had never arrived there. Along with the details of the trauma he'd already been through, he shared other details about Millie's albeit short life, which showed how promising she was and how kind and caring she had been in her 14 short years. She had left school a year prior to her death at 13, and just after that, she'd spent six months in the West Country at the seaside town of Western Supermare, where she lived with her auntie for a short while for a little break, and in the meantime, Millie's mother had become pregnant with another sibling. She'd also spent a month apprenticing a local nurse, but was required at home when her mother was about to give birth, so she had to postpone further studies. But she wasn't perturbed by this. In fact, quite the opposite, and was excited at the thought of being able to use some of her newly found nursing skills on her incoming new sibling. Millie had a bright future ahead of her and was a kind, patient and loyal child whose life had been tragically cut short 
and her father clearly thought very highly of her and so concluded his time on the stand. Next to give evidence was Detective Forth. He outlined the discovery of Millie's body and said that after searching a few of the other empty properties in the previous week, they were first alerted to something being different in 126 Portway once they'd managed to gain access through the unlocked kitchen window because some dust was disturbed in the attic room at the top of the building. As you may remember from part one, gaining access to the house had been made quite difficult due to the keys not being able to be located by the night watchman or their respective owner, saying they'd gone missing. The dust which coated the floor of the as-yet-unoccupied new build had been disturbed by Millie's body having been dragged across the floor, the absence of which led them to discover her fragile frame having been stashed in a cupboard. Along with the disturbance of the dust, there were also some other small items which were found in the house, such as some coins, which were more than likely the ones she'd taken to pay for the fish and chip supper, and also a brooch which was confirmed as the girl's by her mother at the inquest. Footprints in the attic were also found on the floor, which matched the boots Millie was wearing on the evening of her disappearance. Her boot was taken from her body and back to the crime scene by Detective Forth to match the shapes they left behind. This led officers to put forward a second theory that Millie had been taken to the house alive, locked in and then sadly abused over a few days and eventually murdered and placed in the cupboard. The fact the buildings were unoccupied, with no neighbours and directly opposite a park, meant that there wouldn't be many people around to hear any commotion that may have been made by the girl, and the crime could go undetected. Along with the other small items found at the crime scene, there was also a crust of bread found, which officers thought may have been the remnants of some food her captor gave to her. At this point, the speculation from those at the inquest started to turn to the length of time it took to discover poor Millie, and if swift action had been taken, perhaps she would have been found alive. As it turns out, Millie's father had suggested fairly soon after her disappearance that the empty houses be searched, which revealed the incompetence of the police in obtaining access to the empty building and called into question the authenticity of the story of the lost keys, which started to paint an unsavoury picture of both the landlord and the night watchman. Millie wasn't found until two weeks after she'd gone missing on January the 31st, 1890, with her corpse being discovered on February the 14th but her body didn't seem to be as decomposed as expected for having been dead for two weeks, which gives further weight to the thought that she may well have been kept in the house for a few days before she met her untimely end. As the inquest progressed, it was clear that the evidence that had been collected about the murder was very scant and left a lot to be desired instead relying on eyewitness accounts which were devoid of detail which may have helped identify Millie's killer. It seemed as though whoever may have carried out the crime knew how to keep themselves hidden from the law. 
A man who lived nearby, who had been crossing the expanse of land behind the empty houses on the night of Millie's disappearance, saw a man lugging a heavy-looking bundle over his shoulder, and when the man saw him, he changed direction, quickly turning on his heels. When questioned further, he was asked if the bundle may have contained a body, but he couldn't confirm or deny, and as it was dark, he couldn't give any further description. Another eyewitness was called to the stand who had been to the police a few days before Millie went missing with a story which may have just been an attempted abduction on the same street which had left her fearing for her life. The Sunday before Millie was found lifeless in the attic of 126 Portway, a girl in her late teens was waiting opposite West Ham Park for her boyfriend, whom she was meeting when she was grabbed around the waist from behind. At first, she thought it was her boyfriend who was sneaking up on her, and so she playfully turned to tell him off, but soon found herself recoiling in horror, fighting off a man she didn't recognise. She screamed loudly and managed to break free of his grip, running away along the portway, where she then ducked into a photographer's shop to seek refuge, where she stayed for a while to calm her nerves. The young men working in the photographers bravely went to see if they could find the man, and the street was thoroughly searched, but the mystery assailant was nowhere to be seen. The attempted attack caused the woman afterwards to suffer from what was reported as several fits in the weeks after, but what I would have thought with today's modern understanding of trauma to be panic attacks as a result of what she'd endured. However, the report from the young woman again was lacking in identifiable characteristics, which may have provided a positive identification of the assailant, apart from him being a rough-looking gentleman. But in her terror, she'd not been able to recall more than that, which, again, through no fault of her own, gave the police nothing to go on and the thin evidence given at the inquest by all those involved was doing nothing to help bring Millie's killer to justice. After the coroner's inquest, with the weight of the tragic event bearing down on not only everyone involved, but those from the local community as well, the juryman himself was so affected by the tale that he unusually put forward £25 for a reward for any information which would lead to Amelia's killer being caught, and he set a trend for more generous donations to follow. Another member of the public, present at the inquest, also said they put forward £5 and 5 shillings, which in today's money, altogether, would equate close to £5,000. With the inquest now over, Amelia's poor parents were finally able to bury their daughter, but they didn't find themselves alone in doing so. The whole community came out in force, and seemingly the whole of the East End, who were touched by her tragic tale. Thousands of people lined the streets on the day of Amelia Jeff's funeral, making sure she would be given a proper send-off. But unlike someone dying a natural death when the time was right and it being a celebration of life, the feeling on the streets was one of anger and injustice at such a cruel snatching of a young girl's life which would forever be left unlived. On the day of the funeral, the church was fit to bursting with fitting floral tributes for poor Millie. 
Flowers and wreaths spilled out of the doors where her body was displayed in the centre aisle of the church for people to come and pay their respects. At one point, the surrounding churchyard became so overrun with people that the area had to be closed and cleared of mourners to make sure there wasn't an accident from the sheer amount of people cramming into the small space. Inside the church, the family were left alone to spend time with their daughter before she made her final journey to her eternal resting spot, carefully and contemplatively reading the condolences which had been inscribed and attached to the significant floral symbols amassed inside the building. A particularly touching inscription on a wreath encapsulated the overall feeling of those lining up to say goodbye to Millie. It was given by Amelia's father's co-workers at the London, Tilbury and Southend Railway with the inscription, Vengeance is mine, I will repayeth, saith the Lord. Unlike most Victorian funerals, women and children were allowed to attend as these were the people Amelia knew best. Amelia's schoolmates sang in tribute to their friend and led the hymn which ended the funeral, Brief Life is Here Our Portion. Once the service had concluded, the procession then led Amelia's body inside her coffin, placed in a glass-sided horse-drawn hearse, to the East London Cemetery. The procession passed the house where her body was found, in a display of defiance and courage by her family, who trailed behind. People lined the streets the whole two miles from All Saints Church to the East London Cemetery, and came out in droves to pay their respects so much so that by the time the hearse reached the cemetery, a path had to be forged by police so her coffin could be carried to her grave freely and without obstruction from onlookers. Her school friends, who also attended the burial, were given white flowers and they scattered them over her coffin once it was lowered into the ground and before the first soil was thrown over it. Millie's funeral ended up being an unintentionally lavish affair as a result of generous donations given by the community, and her parents didn't end up spending a penny on sending their poor daughter to her final resting place. But the benevolence of those that learned about Millie's tale didn't end there. The reward offered to capture her killer had been growing like a Victorian version of a GoFundMe and eventually reached £400, which would have been around £60,000 today. However, no amount of money was seemingly bringing any light to the case and her killer still remained at large. After Amelia had been buried, the community was still not satiated in their anger and the unsolved case left a gaping hole in the hearts of those living in West Ham. Pressure was mounting for the police to try and find at least a shred of hope that the killer may still be caught. This led them to pore over crimes that had previously happened in the area, and in particular the disappearance of two young girls from the same street. Initially, a local gang who were active in the area at the time were thought to be responsible. 
but when the police looked into the theory further, they couldn't trace anything back to them, and it seemed they were more inclined to carry out burglaries and muggings rather than killing an innocent girl, and so the men were dismissed as likely suspects. The police continued on with their investigations, but it all just felt a bit meh. They weren't really putting enough effort and resources into finding Amelia's killer, but the local community and the girl's family very much were. Much like the internet true crime sleuths out there today, which have helped solve some crimes, some have really hindered them though, so I'm not condoning uninformed voyeuristic ghoulish sleuthing, but sometimes it can be a tool for good. The community went to work on investigating any tip-offs they received. The press were also instrumental in helping to assist with the case, and they put out requests for information periodically for free. As such, information started to drip in from witness reports and from those that had lived in the area. But again, they were devoid of the details, which were so desperately needed. One witness said they saw who they presumed must have been Amelia, having been dragged along the portway against her will by a man, but they said it was dark and they didn't get a good look at him, which again, didn't really give the police much to go on. With the community starting to pile the pressure on the police, they had to begin answering some of the difficult questions they'd been posed by those living in West Ham, and clarification was needed as to why the case was so mishandled from the get-go. When the police were questioned about their delay in carrying out the search of the unoccupied new builds on the portway, they admitted that their delay was not the best response to the case, and this admission of poor practice was sent on to the judge who had overseen the inquest. When questioned further by the judge, the police tried to justify their actions by saying, and I'm paraphrasing here, but basically their case was... It didn't matter when they carried out the search of those particular properties, whether it was an hour after the murder or when they actually did get around to it, but the chances of capturing the killer in their eyes was all the same. Nowadays, we know that crime and time are inextricably intertwined, not just because they rhyme, as does that. I promise I'll stop rhyming now. But it doesn't take a specialist in forensics to work out that the faster police act, the better the chances are that the crime will be solved. The only piece of evidence that was found at the scene of Amelia's murder, which may have possibly belonged to her killer, was the scarf which was used to strangle her. However, in someone's infinite wisdom, they mishandled this crucial item as someone washed it meaning any evidence upon it was now gone and the item was entirely useless. Even though the forensics didn't exist to carry out DNA testing, there may have been other residues upon it, or perhaps even a hair or two, which would at least provide something to go on. The item itself was fairly unremarkable though, and there was no maker's mark and nothing distinguishing about it to help trace it back to its owner, or even the person that sold it to them, who may be able to provide vital information. With Amelia's case growing colder by the day, the previous disappearance of two other girls from the street she lived on were pulled out of the shadows to be re-investigated, with the thought being that it may help to find Millie's killer. Mary Seward and Eliza Carter both went missing from West Ham, but unlike Millie, their bodies 
were never found. To begin with, for some reason, these three girls who were all the same age, who all went missing from pretty much the same street, weren't thought of by the police as connected in any way, shape or form. They just wrote it off as a coincidence, despite there being quite a lot of evidence to the contrary. Mary Seawood was the first girl to go missing from West Ham. She disappeared on the 13th of April 1881, nine years before Millie's murder. She was 14 years old, the same age as Millie, and she lived with her parents at 98 West Road, just a short way down the road from the Jeffs family home at number 38. Mary went missing after her four-year-old nephew, the son of an older sister still living at home, couldn't be found in the house, so she was sent outside to locate him, as it was thought he may have been playing with other children along the street. Now, in Victorian times, it was quite common for the older children in the family to take care of their younger siblings. Parents were often preoccupied with housework or out of their jobs, and so kids were often left to their own devices, which... Honestly, growing up in the 90s, I had a very similar childhood, just minus the more formal dress code and regular exposure to arsenic. At least, I hope that's the case. It was quite common for kids to play out in the streets in a big gang, somewhat like a big free crash with no adult supervision, which I'm sure was absolute chaos 99.9% of the time. Young Mary went door to door on the street, asking if anyone had seen her missing nephew, and a bit later on, some other children brought him home, but Mary wasn't with them, and neither had they seen her on their travels. There then started a secondary search for Mary, but she was nowhere to be seen, and it was as if she'd vanished into thin air. When Mary didn't return home overnight, her mother became frantic. The police were called and they began investigating. The residents of West Road and the surrounding area were questioned, and one woman in particular, whose husband worked at the docks, said there had been a gang in the area snatching young girls to send them abroad for human trafficking. Not that it was called that back then, but that's how we understand the practice today. It's thought that Mary was snatched from her street by one of these gangs, and later on an eyewitness said she'd seen an unusual man prowling the street whom she didn't recognise. She gave more of a description than any of Amelia's witnesses had managed to muster, saying he had dark features and looked like, and I quote, a foreign gypsy. A few days earlier, a young girl had also been approached by a man who happened to have dark hair who appeared from some empty buildings on the street. Not the same empty buildings as the one on the portway, as they'd yet to be built, but some other empty new builds. She managed to make a run for it and made it safely back home where she told her mother, but nothing else was done to alert the authorities at the time and the police ignored the threat and didn't investigate further. It took until June for an appeal to be put out in the newspaper asking for information about Mary's disappearance, but by this time she was long gone and the chances of finding her were slim to none and that would unfortunately be the conclusion of her story. Despite a £35 reward being put out for her safe return, which would have been around 3500 in today's money, Mary was never found, and as such, it's not known if she was linked to Amelia's murder or the subsequent disappearance of another girl from the same street a year later. 
However, later theories suggest she was more than likely trafficked abroad and sold into slavery in a brothel, which even in the first place doesn't bear thinking about for an adult, but at the age of 14 is just so horrendous. Nine months later, 13-year-old Eliza Carter went missing from the same street in West Ham. On Saturday the 28th of January 1882, Eliza was out playing with a friend when the sun had gone down at about 4.30. The two had been playing in West Ham Park together and Eliza had not wanted to cross the park in the dark on her own as she was frightened and unfortunately her fear was within reason. Somehow, between Eliza having been left by her friend and reaching her front door, she was snatched. Her family raised the alarm with the police when she didn't return home, but there was nothing found of the poor girl until early next morning, when a boy passing through West Ham Park found her dress discarded on the grass. All the buttons had been cut off the dress and clearly taken to be sold, but the dress, other than that, was in good condition, and there were no blood marks upon it or anything which may suggest the girl had been attacked, apart from it obviously not being on her person. As the dress was found in the park, police thought Eliza may have gone swimming or perhaps her body had been thrown in one of the ponds within the park. As such, police dredged the waters, but they found nothing of the girl. A witness report came through after her description was circulated in the newspapers that she'd been seen in Shoreditch being dragged along the street by a man, seemingly against her will. But of course, this being London and the Victorian times, no one did anything to stop it. And as Shoreditch in this time was a very rough area, people were probably concerned for their own safety. Another report a few months later said Eliza had been seen at the docks in Portsmouth outside of London on the south coast, being dragged along by a woman who they said was possibly a man in disguise. And although the sighting was reported by the witness to Scotland Yard almost immediately, no further investigation was carried out by the police, and as Eliza was from a poor family who couldn't offer any kind of reward any further publicity wasn't pursued, and the girl was seemingly surrendered by the authorities to her captors by way of negligence of the case. However, a year later, something very odd happened. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. On January the 18th, 1883... 
A mysterious parcel arrived at a shipping office, having been unable to be delivered to its intended recipient, a Mrs. Green, 24 Abbey Road, St. John's Wood. Yes, that Abbey Road, which would later go on to be immortalised in pop culture by the Beatles walking across one of its separate crossings with no shoes on, and which nowadays annoys the hell out of anyone trying to drive through the area. The box in question had been returned to the depot after having failed to have been delivered a few times, and the subsequent package had been left sitting unattended without much plan of what to do with it next. Much to the chagrin of the workers, the parcel was leaking and emanating a putrid smell, leading them to believe it contained rotting food. As such, they cracked the lid open to get rid of the contents, and much to their horror, they found the face of a child staring up at them. Inside the box was a body that had been unceremoniously shoved into the parcel and then posted on to be forgotten. The police were informed about the body in the box, and what with the outstanding cases of Mary and Eliza still going unsolved, the parents of both girls were invited to view the corpse at the mortuary, where it had been sent for a post-mortem. However, as the remains were so decomposed, a positive identification wasn't possible, and the body went unclaimed. One thing that could be seen, though, were the earlobes of the poor victim, which helped to mildly narrow down that this wasn't one of the missing girls, as Eliza had her ears pierced, but Mary didn't. So if this was either of the girls, it could have been Mary, as the ears had no piercing scars. From the post-mortem, the death was stated as malnutrition, but To be honest, working it out in that day and age with such a decomposed corpse would have definitely been a shot in the dark, and so no one really knows. The police tried to trace the parcel back to its original senders, but the boy working in the shop that day couldn't recollect the men who had dropped it off, as there was nothing different to the parcel than any other that day. When the inquest was carried out for the girl in the box, Mary Green the intended recipient of the parcel, was on holiday at the time, which is why she couldn't receive it when it was originally attempted to be delivered. She denied any knowledge of the box and its contents. She said she didn't know any young girls, had never had a child, and was completely perplexed as to why such a gruesome parcel would be addressed to her. Anyone in the area who had anything to do with the surname Green was questioned on the stand, but all roads led to dead ends as no one could explain any connection they may have had to the poor girl. As there were no leads or any way to track down the senders of the parcel, the inquest closed with the girl's death having been caused by starvation and also due to a dose of morphine found in her system. Again, the case was left to drift into obscurity and the identity of the girl was never confirmed and her case never solved. However, a few months later, a woman named Mrs Farrell, who lived on Fleet Street, said the body may have been her servant girl, Clara Sutton, who had spent a short time in West Ham when she was sent to work at a house there. She, strangely enough, ended up befriending Mary Seward, who lived on the same street, and the pair became good friends. When Clara returned to work once more for Mrs Farrell, she spoke a lot about her dear friend Mary having gone missing, and so Mrs Farrell believed that there may have been a connection with her own disappearance. 
As Clara was seemingly part of some kind of agency for servant girls, she was collected from the house and sent to another address. But later on, Mrs Farrell tried to contact her to inquire after her, as she liked the girl and wanted to know she was doing well at her new job, but she never received a reply. However, after this, it seems the police may have found Clara Sutton alive and well and working in Essex, as the inquest wasn't progressed any further, and so the case of the putrid parcel still remained open with no conclusion. Fast forward to Amelia Jeff's murder seven years later in 1890, and the aforementioned cases were disregarded by the police as having anything to do with her murder, as they weren't consistent with what they'd found, which was actually very little. In Amelia Jeff's secondary inquest, the jury heard how access to the abandoned properties had been difficult to obtain – The main reason for this being a night watchman from the area struggling to obtain the keys. Samuel Roberts, a watchman in West Ham, had been part of the search party for Amelia, but when instructed by Millie's father to help search the abandoned properties, he was reluctant to gain entry into all of the houses, saying he hadn't been able to obtain the keys from the landlord for all of the properties, which included 126 The Portway. With this information being surrendered to the court, the juryman adjourned the case until police could investigate this line further. Amelia's mother was also asked if Millie knew Mr Roberts, to which she said yes. She had pointed him out a few times to her, saying he was the watchman. That's how much of a child we're dealing with here. Someone that points and says, look mummy, that's the watchman. It's so very sad. Back at the next inquest date, Samuel Roberts took the stand and said he didn't know who Amelia was and nor had he ever met her. He said the reason she'd pointed him out to her mother was that the kids in the area referred to him as Daddy Watchman and that must have been passed down to her from the local children and he had no idea who she was. As it transpired, the case of the missing keys was most odd, as it became apparent quite quickly that Samuel was more acquainted with the abandoned properties than he was letting on. Admitting that he, at one point prior to his appointment as the local watchman, had been the caretaker for them. He proceeded to then confuse the jury by saying he'd not been to the properties for over a year, but then at one point said he'd visited them just a month before Amelia was found unceremoniously shoved into the cupboard. However, ultimately, Roberts was an older gentleman whose health was failing him. He was almost deaf and quite possibly prone to bouts of confusion, which didn't help him in court, and as such, there was no concrete evidence which could be drawn against him, and the inquest was drawn to a close. The police didn't have enough to charge Roberts with Amelia's murder, but that didn't stop them from being suspicious about Samuel Roberts, but also maybe his son Joseph, who had a hand in building the properties, and who had access to the keys. But the lack of evidence was a real problem. This left the family without justice for Millie's death, and they were incredibly angry at how the case was handled. Amelia's mother even spoke to the press admitting how bungled the investigation had been and that she was indignant at how it had been handled, which would have been a real challenge of power back in the day, particularly for a woman, but by this point she'd already lost everything 
so there was nothing left to lose by loudly voicing her opinion and condemning the actions of the police. A few months later, however, a new lead was thrown up when the keys for 126 Portway, which had up until this time been missing, were found in the attic room inside a hole in the floor. The property, which now had new tenants who seemingly weren't too put off by the whole murder business, had been decorating the loft space when they found keys inside a hole in the floor. The police were called, but as it turned out, this was just a set of keys that had been dropped by a careless painter who told them as much and not the missing keys used to obtain access to the home on the night of Amelia's murder. Ultimately, the crime went unsolved and the interest eventually began to die out from the press, with the case growing cold. However, two further cases give weight to the theory that if not all of these cases were linked, at least some of them had striking similarities between them. With the cases of all of these girls never having been solved, it was inevitable that at some point another tragedy would strike. Eight years later, in 1898, a five-year-old girl named Mary Voller was found stabbed to death, discarded in a ditch just three miles away from West Ham in Barking. Much like all the other girls before her, Mary was sent to complete a simple errand by her father, sent to go and buy some linseed from the grocery shop, a common medicine back in the day for stomach issues, but she never returned from the task which should have only taken her a matter of minutes to complete. When Mary didn't return within 15 minutes, her father went to check where she got to and went to the shop himself. Much like Millie eight years previously, she'd never made it to her intended destination and the shopkeeper said he'd not seen her. Mary's father frantically searched the neighbourhood, even going to the sweet shop thinking his little girl may have decided to go and buy herself a treat instead of medicine, but she disappeared. After an hour had passed and with still no sign of Mary, her father went to the police station to ask for help, but instead of aiding him in his search, they told him to go away and try looking again. It was then that her father, with the help of a neighbour, went to some abandoned houses which didn't prove fruitful in locating the girl, but there was a flooded ditch at the back of one of the properties which the neighbour thought it wise to check. Here, her father saw a glimmer of something floating in the water, but as he raised his lantern to inspect in the gloom, it ran out of oil and sputtered out. Desperate by this point, he flung himself into the ditch and began pulling his arms through the water. He was stopped in his tracks when his arms collided with a small body. He dragged it out and to his horror, it was indeed his poor, lifeless daughter. Mary's body was surrendered to the coroner and so began the investigation into what had happened to the girl. She had two incisions on her neck which looked like they'd been made with a blunt object. Her lungs, mouth and airways were all free of any detritus that was in the ditch, meaning that she had died before having been discarded in there. Whilst it may have looked like a tragic accident and that Mary had tripped and fallen into the ditch and drowned, her body told a different story. However, the judge in court wasn't convinced the injuries she'd sustained were enough to warrant her death and basically left the case open-ended, which didn't give the police enough impetus or authority to investigate any further. The case yet again was allowed to go cold, and no one was ever convicted of Mary's murder. 
and I'm sorry to say, but the bodies just keep piling up. Previously, in 1892, 10-year-old Annie West was found dead in a ditch, yet again having been murdered before being discarded. But a man in the local area, George Herbert Bush, who was referred to in court as a maniac, confessed to the crime and gave a detailed description of the place Annie was found, leading the jury at her inquest to believe he was indeed the perpetrator. But then, after Bush was behind bars, another attempted murder took place. 11-year-old Eliza Skinner was found bound by her ankles in a field by two neighbours of hers. She had been discarded after having been assaulted, and her mouth was found full of mud and pondweeds. Eliza had been out with her 14-year-old brother playing in the fields in Walthamstow when a man had approached her and asked her for directions across the fields. She told her brother she would show him the way and went on her own with him and he returned home. This was definitely a time before stranger danger was a thing. Eliza was left for dead after seemingly having been thrown into a ditch, but then placed back in the field which may have been what saved her as she avoided drowning. She was unconscious when she was discovered and carried back home by her neighbours, and she eventually made a full recovery, but the man responsible for the crime was yet again never caught. However, we finally at this point get a description. Eliza's brother said the man had dark whiskers, was wearing a cheese cutter's cap, which is a flat cap like the ones they wear in Peaky Blinders, and a blue serge suit, which is a kind of tweedy fabric. The same man was then seen running back across the field shortly before Eliza was discovered, which means the neighbours on their stroll luckily disturbed him, making him flee the scene and saving Eliza's life. However, the man was never seen again, and you guessed it, the case went cold. A year later, in 1899, a six-year-old girl went missing, and her body was found in a very similar situation to Amelia Jeffs. Six-year-old Bertha Russ, who lived in East Ham, which isn't very far from West Ham, was found in an empty house around ten days after her disappearance. Bertha had been at Sunday school, and at 4pm the class was dismissed. Bertha left to go home, but then decided she'd actually like to go back, but when she got back to the church, the gate was locked and she couldn't get inside. She was seen by two women who were passing, who later told the police she seemed a little distressed, but they saw a man go and speak to her, who they assumed she knew, so they didn't intervene. They said he was wearing a flat cap, but they had no other identifying information to give. They then saw the girl walk off with the man around a corner, and it would be almost a fortnight later before her body was found. Unlike Amelia and the bungle of the missing keys which hindered getting into the empty properties, the unoccupied buildings in the area were searched almost immediately, and initially nothing was found but after a secondary search a few days later, Bertha's body was found stashed inside an attic cupboard in an almost identical way that Millie had been. She'd also, like Millie, been strangled. Thankfully, though, she'd not been subjected to the physical outrage which Millie had endured. 
Now, you're not going to be surprised at this, but her killer was never found and all avenues of investigation were, well, from what it looks like to me, the police had just thoroughly given up by this point. They didn't even have the excuse of Jack the Ripper taking all their time and resources as his crimes ended 10 years previously. So after all of those horrific tales, I would love to be able to wrap it all up and provide you with a conclusion, but I'm afraid this one is still very much unravelled to this day, and I don't think there will ever be a definitive answer or justice for these poor girls which suffered at the hands of their killers. It's tricky to narrow it down to one suspect. After all, the main suspicions fall with the men in the area who were able to abuse their positions of power to lure these young girls into being complicit with their requests, which allowed them to carry out their heinous crimes. The night watchman Samuel Roberts was definitely a suspect, but this may have been a cover-up. Joseph Roberts, who was Samuel Roberts' son, was a builder in the local area and just so happened to have been given the keys to the empty properties on the portway a few days before Amelia's body was found to carry out some work on them. However, he said in court that he'd never actually ever been given the keys for 126 Portway and had never been into that property. However, footprints on the floor tallied with Amelia's boots, which showed she'd at some point stood by the front door, meaning she'd more than likely been taken into the home through the main entrance, which had been opened with a key. Could it be that Samuel, Joseph's father, knew exactly what had happened in that house and purposefully obstructed the location of the keys lying to the jury and then disposed of them in the hole in the attic floor at a later date, paying the painter to provide an alibi to make sure his son got away with the crime, allowing him to continue on his murder spree for several years? I couldn't possibly say, but it makes for an interesting theory, doesn't it? And it's not just my theory either. Towards the end of the coroner's inquest, the suspicions began to mount against the Roberts family, but with no evidence to prove this and seemingly efforts being made to cover up the crime paired with a lack of interest from the police, it was impossible to make a conviction. All I can say for certain is that this set of disappearances and murders just goes to show that the forensic improvements required to solve such complex cases were desperately needed, and it would still take a number of years before these were available with the first forensic lab in London being built in 1935, almost 40 years after the last girl was found. Sadly, the cases of these children which went missing and the trauma and grief their families endured did only have one minor effect on improving life for people in the area, which was to install a few more gas lamps on the surrounding streets. A poor effort in helping to find a serial killer at large and a pitiful public token to produce an illusion of safety for the parents in the area. Now, it may well be that not all these crimes were connected, but there's a strong coincidence, and surely in such a small area, there can't have been several child murderers at large. Surely they had to be at least somewhat linked, but this still doesn't help solve their cases. These were poor people who didn't have much of a choice but to use their children to contribute to the household, helping them with errands and their day-to-day lives. And much like today, the police didn't care about them nor did they want to make an effort to capture the man who brought so much anguish to a quiet neighbourhood, 
which other than those atrocities was a calm suburb to live in. Unlike the sensationalism of Jack the Ripper and his five victims, these seven girls who were murdered, or attempted to be murdered, or who disappeared completely, never received the justice they deserved, and what happened to them was allowed to slip into obscurity. And sadly, their murderer got to live the life he so cruelly took away from them. this episode what a story you can see why it needed to be split into two parts now so many tales and i still feel like some of them had to be quite condensed as usual all my sources are in the description if you want to take a deeper look yourself whilst you're here if you wouldn't mind leaving me a sacrificial comment for the algorithm and a thumbs up on youtube or a review and rating on your podcast provider then i'd be eternally grateful it really helps my channel grow and my content reach more people and I'm trying to forge this into a career somehow. So if you can help me, then I would really, really appreciate it. And you'll get lots of good karma points from the universe. And everybody needs those, right? Speaking of karma points, I don't usually air my grievances in public, but I had a one-star review from a turf recently who disagreed with my stance on the evil atrocity, which is JK Rowling, and me saying she should go to hell in a hot air balloon full of earwigs, which I personally thought was quite witty, but they didn't like it. So if you want to go boost my rating back up to show the ghoul gang supports trans people and trans rights, and we don't stand for horrid little turfs with nothing better to do, then I would really love you for that. The best way to counteract hate is with love and kindness, as they say, and I know that that's the majority of you who listen, and if it's not, maybe consider joining us. It's nice to be inclusive. And also, just to annoy them further, I've made a donation to a trans charity on their behalf from me, and there is a link on the screen right now on YouTube and also in the description for Jaya's the Gender Identity Research and Education Society charity, who, I've ripped this straight from their website, whose aim is to work to help the trans and gender non-conforming communities, including those whose preferred expression is non-binary and non-gender. The charity is operated by volunteers who give their time freely to support those struggling with gender expression. They work in collaboration with other groups in this field and endeavour to find ways to empower individuals to discover their authentic voice. They also work closely with families who are affected directly with a family member experiencing difficulties. So if you want to join me in upsetting the turfs, please head over there and donate if you're able to. Oh, looky here. It's almost as if it's my own platform and I can do with it what I want, isn't it? Ah, I'm a charity goblin. <laughs> okay, I'll keep the rest of this brief. If you're new around here, please subscribe and join our inclusive and accepting ghoul gang so you stay up to date every time I release a new episode. Also, if you'd like to support what I make to make sure it continues and so I can make more of it on a regular basis in the future, then why not consider becoming a patron like these amazing top tier legendary executive Patreon producers 
producers Amy, Christina, Christoph, Kate, Mary, Rose, Sally, Sam, Sarah, Therese, Terry, V and Veronica and all of our other patrons too. Please check out the support me section in the show notes for more ways to help me in continuing to bring you the haunted history we both love, including my Amazon wishlist and one-off donation links if you just want to send a tip to help contribute to my coffee bill when I write these episodes. Thanks for joining me for another macabre tale from London's past. I've been Nikki Druce. Remember to stay spooky and I'll see you ghouls next time. It's so hot today. 28 degrees. I'm dying. (laughs) Hopefully I didn't sound too exasperated. (laughs) Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.